0: Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast diving into and analyzing acts of espionage throughout history, tracing the exploits of daring spies, covert operations, assassinations, hacking, secret organizations, and more. Co hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover, thanks to his dear old dad and co host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Oleg Gordievsky. May, 1985. A month after Oleg Gordievsky is promoted to head the KGB's London office, he's suddenly summoned back to Russia on the pretense of promotion, but he immediately feels something is off. His MI6 handlers urge him to go so as to not set off any alarm bells, and there's no intel he's compromised. Meanwhile, Gordievsky's Moscow apartment is being bugged with wires and his clothes dusted with radioactive material so that he can be traced with a Geiger counter. Returning to Moscow, at his apartment, someone locked the third lock that he never uses because he lost the key. Gordievsky having to break into his own apartment. Clearly, the KGB searched his flat and were sloppy about it too. He's supposed to meet the head of the KGB for his supposed promotion. And not long after, he's picked up and taken to a safe house by two counter-espionage agents and an old colleague. Arriving at the location, there are others there who want to have a chat with him. But first, they eat and drink. When suddenly, Gordievsky feels something is wrong. Looking down at his drink, the realization dawns on him. He's been drugged with truth serum and is about to be interrogated moments later, Gordievsky is told to confess, the agents in the room saying that they know he's a double agent. But Gordievsky knows better. If they need a confession, then he realizes they don't have enough evidence and are merely suspecting him. And somehow, through the haze of the poison running through his system, he doesn't break. Keeping his cool, denying everything. So, when you found out we were going to do an episode on Oleg Gordievsky, what did you think, Dad? Very interesting topic, very interesting
2: case, and very current. And I thought it would be very interesting because it brings us to the more modern times, real issues that we deal with, and today-to-day uh, running of agencies. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be very interesting to discuss some of these aspects.
0: It's definitely current. Gordievsky is still alive and with us, and he may or may not have met certain people throughout the course of his career and their careers. It's an interesting, interesting topic to discuss, wouldn't you agree? I would agree. <laughs> So let's dive right into it, shall we? We shall. (laughs) Gordievsky was born in 1938 in Russia, of course. His father worked for the KGB his whole life. He even wore his uniform on the weekends. You know, this is kind of like a, a very proud nationalist Russian. Well,
2: he didn't work undercover, otherwise, he wouldn't have had his uniform all the time.
0: <laughs> yes, he definitely didn't work undercover. Kordievsky was raised in an apartment block that was actually dedicated for spies and people working in the KGB. At an early age, he learned all the communist principles at school and at home. And he was also, at an early age, fascinated by languages and history. He knew how to read German. He learned about foreign lands during his school days, uh, something that fascinated him. He joined what was called the Komsomol, or the Young Communist League, which was absolutely normal for the time. It was kind of what every young aspiring Russian would do. At 17, he was enrolled at the prestigious Moscow State Institute of International Relations. This was actually after Stalin's death which was a brief period in, in Russia that there was a, a bit of a relaxation of kind of the harsh communist authority. And during that time, he studied history and geography, economics and international affairs. He wanted to learn English as well, but was unable to. They just didn't offer it. On the advice of his elder brother, he uh, learned Swedish instead and also took up cross-country running during his university days, which later turned to be a very useful skill him to have the Institute of International Relations also housed a very small KGB station, which began looking for recruits. And Gordievsky's brother was actually already training to be a spy, and he told the officials that his younger brother. Oleg would also potentially be interested. Oleg was asked to sit for an interview in German, and he passes because he spoke German well and was interested in things. And as a result, he was sent to East Germany as a translator in August of 1961 for six months. This is, you know, a very young age. He doesn't know that he's officially working for the KGB. He's just sent to do to do a job. He stays in a student hostel, and he makes contact with his brother, who was actually working there as a spy, but neither knew that the other was working there for the supposed reasons that they were actually there. Oleg Gordievsky, not the undercover spy brother, was uh, running errands and doing different tasks while he was there, which later he would find out was actually a litmus test for his capabilities of potentially being a part of the KGB. Kind of interesting that he doesn't even know he's being recruited, but he's being recruited, no?
2: Um, I I would think that both brothers knew eventually that not even eventually. They knew at the time that this is the case. The father worked where he did, and knowing the things they did, people who went abroad were always scrutinized. Therefore, if you went abroad, it was sent by the government, and if it was the government, it was usually connected
0: with intelligence
2: or something authorized. So sure, I, I intelligence, think,
0: but not necessarily the KGB. Well, intelligence, KGB.
2: KGB, remember, was, was a big name for the, everything. So mm-hmm. uh, maybe he didn't know exactly what was prepared for him or what was what was going to be the next stage. But I'm sure most people who went out under these conditions had some
0: kind of an understanding. Yeah, I'm sure he had suspicions. Now, in 1961, Berlin was a time of max exodus from East to West Berlin because after World War II, Berlin was split into two, East Berlin being under control of the Soviets and West Berlin being controlled by the Allied powers, um, United States, Britain, France. France. So democracy on one side, communism on the other. The infamous Berlin Wall was being built at the time, and Gordievsky actually witnessed this, and he witnessed people trying to flee. He witnessed how they were oppressed and shot by what he called the administration, which was, you know, the the communist authorities, the Soviet authorities. They shot their own people as they tried to flee, uh, which stuck with him, and other incidents like this stuck with him. After passing his test in Berlin at 23 years old in 1962, Gordievsky was sent to a KGB covert training center, the Red Banner School 101, training him to become a KGB officer along with 120 other trainees, learning intelligence, counterintelligence, surveillance, combat, basically everything he'd need to become a very desperately Russian spy for Cold War. Without the accent, because uh, then well, you can't he, be the cover. Yes, he had, he had the accent naturally. <laughs> okay. Anyway, by uh, 1965... He was ready for his first posting. Dun, dun, dun. Where did he go? In 1965, he was deployed to Copenhagen as a diplomat. Wait a second, you say, posted as a diplomat? I thought he was in a KGB. Aha, well, 30 to 40% of the embassy that was there as diplomats were actually KGB officers under the guise of diplomats. What Oleg specifically did was he ran spies working civilian jobs under deep cover often using the identities of dead people as cover for the agents. Denmark at the time was a frontline state for if the Cold War turned hot, meaning the Cold War, why is it called the Cold War? Because the Soviet powers and the powers of democracy kind of de facto fighting a war, but not actually shooting any bullets. But if it got hot, as in if tensions really ramped up, Denmark would be the frontline because it was very close to Russia. And so there was a lot of spies and covert activity happening in Copenhagen and Denmark. Now, the Danish security service actually knew that Gordievsky was KGB because, as I said, a high percentage of embassy workers were actually intelligence workers. And they saw him visiting cemeteries and speaking with clergy, and they knew that part of the cover was using dead people's identities.
2: Well, you have to remember as well, sometimes it's easy. You just follow who replaces who. One goes in, one goes out, and you just have to see if you know who is a specific person that you think he is and someone replaces him, then automatically you feel that he might be from the same organization. So it gives you an idea of, of, uh, of who the people are. So that's a weakness, but sometimes it helps, sometimes it does. not I would
0: also think that, like, if they're supposed to be an official diplomat and they're not going to meet other official diplomats in official diplomatic business, then the guys would be like, oh, they're pencil pushers at the office, let's say. But then if he's not in the office all day, then what is he actually doing?
2: A lot of these people do have an official position in the embassy, and it's an official Diplomatic mission, so that they can actually do the real diplomatic work, and then, not I would say in the spare time, but as well, work extra time doing
0: other things, but they have a dual job. So, so they it's do not a, a dual role. They do a dual role. I see. Okay. So... Gordievsky actually, while he's in Copenhagen, becomes disenchanted with the Soviet mentality. His mind is opened up. He goes to libraries in Copenhagen and he reads any book that he wants. Unlike Soviet Russia, where you were only allowed to read what was acceptable by the state. He was amazed by the freedoms that were there. He had a deep love for classical music, which had become banned in the USSR. He was able to listen to it there, of course. He even bought gay porn magazines and proudly displayed them in his house, simply because it was possible to do so as opposed to what he described as the concentration camp-like environment in Russia. Then, the Prague Spring occurred, and this was a turning point for Gordievsky. The Prague Spring was an uprising in then Czechoslovakia, and the Kremlin sent thousands of tanks and troops to brutally suppress the uprising. Hundreds were massacred, and Gordievsky later was quoted as calling the Soviet actions "...a brutal attack on innocent people that made me hate it with a burning passionate hatred." He even called his wife, crying, saying, it's all over. But was this a normal call? The Danish intelligence were bugging the embassy phones, and they heard his conversation. What was this? A crack in the Soviet iron will? A careless mistake? Or was it a signal? Was he indicating that he was ready to defect? Or was he possibly a secret double agent, giving them what was called a dangle? Well, you have a look at it from his point of view and his perspective.
2: What is he doing here? He knows much more about what the capabilities of the Danes are. So the question is, does he not know that they are listening to his phones? Yes, he assumes they're listening to his phones.
0: He even confirmed it later that he knew the Danes were listening to his phones. Yes, but at the
2: time they were not sure about it. So he knows about the capabilities of the Danes, and he knows something about the capabilities of his agents in the Danish establishment. He has to be very careful careful and cautious about how he does things because he doesn't want to be compromised. On the other hand, he doesn't trust really anyone. And is it a message? He said it is. Was it at the time a message? We have to assume it was. But uh, my feeling is that it was more of a spontaneous phone call that he made. Was he really willing at that moment to cross the lines? That we will have to see.
0: Later, he confirms or says in interviews and books and things that the phone call specifically made from the embassy phone, which he knew was bugged, was a signal to the Danes that he was open to a conversation, to defect even. But it was missed. And at the end of his three-year stint in Copenhagen, Gordievsky returns home in 1968. Years pass, and in 1972, Gordievsky returns to Copenhagen once again, promoted to the position of Deputy of Political Intelligence in Denmark. And on his return, he's actually flagged as a person of interest after a friend of his from university defects and mentions that Gordievsky might be inclined to cooperate due to previous signs of political disillusionment that he displayed while in university. And so, with this information, the Danes think, aha, let's try to turn him. And so they set out a trap but not just any trap, a honey trap. They send out an attractive young Danish man who at a party gets a little bit too drunk and a little bit talkative, chatting up Oleg, offering to take him to a bar to continue the evening, which Oleg declines. The Danes upset at this because of course they thought Oleg was gay Why?
2: He left messages that he might be interested in that kind of sort of activity, but obviously they
0: didn't understand. He bought those gay porn magazines and displayed them in his apartment. That means someone was in the apartment or someone knew what he was buying. Whatever the case was. The little act of doing that sent the wrong message to the Danes, and they set up a trap which had no chance of succeeding. And so, the Danes failed. And what do they do? They turn to their intelligence allies at MI6 for help in recruiting Gordievsky. So... Now it's MI6's turn. We'll show how it's done, lads. (laughs) And what do they do? They make an attempt. They don't send out a young, attractive man. No, no, no. Such a silly, foolish thing. They send out a young, attractive woman to entice him. She was a dentistry student who would actually later become a Batman champion, a sport which Gordievsky actually also played. The two had a couple drinks, chatting, flirting a little bit maybe, before Gordievsky promptly left. The plan, once again, failing. Finally, the head of the local MI6 station undertook the task of recruiting Gordievsky himself. And after a long series of chance encounters between the two at receptions and athletic clubs, eventually the MI6 officer suggested meeting in private, a meeting to which Gordievsky agreed On the condition that the Danes not be involved because he knew that the KGB had a contact inside Danish police. So the pair meet at a hotel in the center of Copenhagen and Gordievsky lays out three conditions for his cooperation with MI6. One, he is never followed or photographed. Two, his colleagues at the consulate will never be compromised. And three, he will receive no payments in exchange for his services.
2: You have to understand where he's coming from and his position. He knows these are weaknesses that could be then traced to him, and he has to protect himself. So, everything he is doing is thinking, what am I doing now that afterwards I could be compromised? I, I know too much, he says to himself, about the capabilities of the KGB and other allies in Denmark, and therefore if you have too many people in Denmark who are aware of my connections, I'll be compromised. Second, he knows that if he compromises people from the embassy or people that are working with him, it would lead to him, because it would be more specific. That will raise the alarm. And third, he didn't see himself working for money. His motive was no money. And he knew as well that if he gets paid even one English pound or one Danish currency... He then puts himself in a different category and he cannot deny things. So he's always thinking two steps ahead of everybody else.
0: It's actually a little bit rare that you have someone who's so idealistic about it. But Gordievsky was one of those rare people who defected from really a very strong point of idealism, in addition to the fact of knowing two steps ahead. And if he's getting paid, then it could lead to. Look as well how they made contact.
2: In the end, how they made contact. Interesting things happened here. One, uh, all the honey traps and all the different things they tried to do, the classical approaches didn't work. One, he didn't buy it. Second, he didn't trust it, and that's not the way he wanted to go for it. He, He didn't want middlemen. He didn't want anything like that happening. It wasn't good enough for him. But it comes back as well to what you said before. Does he have another job? Yes, he has another job, an official job. And so does the British guy. He has an official job. It allows him to meet people. It allows chiefs of station or Espionage people to meet espionage people under a hat of diplomatic hat, allowing themselves to have a chat or talk without being a traitor. If he's asked by the Russians, "Okay, why did you meet him?" So, well, I went to an official uh, event. That's my job, and uh, so it's legitimate for him to talk. They they also then, met
0: in like badminton stuff as well. You know,
2: that's afterwards. But if you look at the f- initial reaction or initial contact, it had to be a hundred percent correct,
0: above board. Yes,
2: and that's. And again, you made a decision made by a head of a station who realized that the only way to go forward is to do it himself. And that's as well a gut, you could say, a gutsy move because uh, he knows who he is Mm -hmm. and the other guys know who he is. So basically, it's a risk
0: you're taking. Yeah. Well, at first, the MI6 were not initially sure if this was bait. Because Gordievsky was so high-ranking, to have someone like him defect, it was, what is this? It's too good to be true. But quickly, he proved his worth, and that he was the real deal. Gordievsky's early missions were to smuggle top-secret microfilms from the embassy and pass them to handlers in a brush pass, when two people would walk by each other and pass off something. These microfilms in this case. The MI6 officer receiving the brush pass would then immediately head to a nearby safe house and copy the film, and then in 30 minutes return it back to Gordievsky, who would then return to the embassy without anyone noticing. The microfilms he was able to pass on this way revealed the inner workings of the KGB in Copenhagen, as well as names of agents working undercover. And for four years, Gordievsky provided this intel and others to the MI6. During this time, Realizing how valuable he was as an asset, the MI6 started developing a rescue mission of sorts that they called Operation Pimlico. This plan was an operation to rescue Gordievsky from the heart of Russia itself, should he be compromised. Of course, they'd hoped to never have to use it. But we'll get to that, won't we? Yes, we will. In 1978, his posting in Copenhagen was over, and Gordievsky returned to Russia. He was desk-bound, dealing with classified documents pertaining to agents operating all across Western Europe. MI6 kept their distance, making no attempts to contact him. And both parties played the long game.
2: That's a very, very important message to a lot of operations. You know you have an asset, you know he has information. I mean, we're talking about those days, not today, when there's other ways of communication. You don't have to physically be with each other and meet each other and pass things. Today it's a different world. But in those days, the only way to get the information out was physical, have a meeting. I would say that the fact that the MI6 realized that the only way to keep their assets safe was not to have contact with him and give it time. That is a lesson that not always agencies remember. Some people don't have the patience and they want immediately the information and you compromise your agent. Well, we're living in generation now. And, and of course, the communication systems are different. So today you can be in touch with people without even seeing them, as we said. And, but in those days, that
0: was the only way to do it. Then, in 1982, something remarkable happened. Gordievsky was posted to London. A lucky break, or orchestrated by himself, maneuvering to get there. In preparation for his posting in London, he was told to read Somerset Mon by an old friend as preparation as a way to understand the British, and also, he goes through the KGB archive looking for information that might be interesting to MI6 before he leaves. While searching through the files, he comes across one labeled Boot, a codename for a man named Michael Foote. And for our British listeners out there, you'll know he was a British politician and labor leader who was potentially in line to be the next prime minister. The file showed that Michael Foote had many meetings with KGB officers, as well as received vast amounts of payments. Arriving in London, Gordievsky almost immediately makes contact. Given a number that was always manned, he calls it. And later, he meets an MI6 agent in a safe house, a small rented flat, where they continue to meet once a month, only for 50 minutes at a time, enough time for him to fit it in his lunch break. He passes on the information he has about Michael Foote. But that information was not passed on to Prime Minister Thatcher. Other names, though, were, including many other politicians and people in places of power, which led to police warnings, interrogations, and expulsions, curbing a series of possibly devastating effects. Later, Michael Foote loses his election to Thatcher in a landslide. So in the end, MI6 didn't need to act against him. Why wouldn't you pass on information like this? It's a very difficult and tricky decision. Of course, it has explosive
2: information ramifications yeah and uh, are you interfering in the politics of the country is it a way for could they deny it could you actually do something about it it's it's a problem yeah i don't think they would hold information like that but i don't think they would maybe act to do something well i think i
0: think the proof is in the pudding you know it's quite possible just like we have today that polls as much as people like to to be against Thatcher these days. Back then, she won in a landslide victory. She was very popular. wasn't relevant necessarily to act. Well, if- you
2: have to remember, it's still, it's a politician, a very high-ranking politician working for the other side in some way. That's treason. You're going against the interests of your country and the security services and the intelligence services of the country are supposed to stop it. But if you stop it, what happens? Isn't it better sometimes just to monitor it and see what it's about, make a damage control? Could he deny it? I mean, he could say he met people because of his position. He met official diplomats from all around and he met as well Russians. I'm sure the Russians Russians met him in a way that they could make it legitimate for the communication for the world that this is the situation. So they're not going to meet him and send him to Russia for meetings. But, you know, a cocktail here, a cocktail there. Maybe some uh, fundraising through all sorts of charities he had through three or third, fourth party. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's not like he... I don't think he got envelopes with money and they told him they're going to contribute to his uh, campaign. I don't think they'll do that because they want to keep their asset as well.
0: Sure. The MI6 also wanted to keep Gordievsky as an asset. And to do so, they had to keep him secret from everyone. The prime minister and even their allies and other intelligence agencies didn't know who he was. Also, the MI6 fed Gordievsky non-damaging but useful information to boost his status at the KGB. I love this bit. This is, like, so cool to me that they, like, provide info to their guy to, like, boost him up among the agency to, like, feel important so that he gets better information. That was great. And he was promoted in 1983 to lieutenant colonel and deputy head in London, the CIA beginning to take interest in the high-level intel coming from London, but they were not told from where it was coming. The MI6 continued assisting in Gordievsky's rise by also clearing the path and removing those ahead of him. Finding excuses to send them back to Russia, or we don't get along with this guy, or he sneezed on my wife, or... exposing
2: them, or doing things that make sure that they leave, and... And this
0: way, their man rises to the top. It helps. It definitely helps.
2: When you have friends in the right places, it always helps.
0: Yes. But then, tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union began to grow. The Soviet Union became convinced that an upcoming nuclear attack was going to occur and they launched Operation Ryan in 1981. Operation Ryan was a plan to go out and collect as much evidence as possible on the attack that they knew was imminent. Scraping for clues. How many lights were switched on in the Ministry of Defense after 10 p.m.? (gasps) So many, why? Well, there were cleaners there, and it's a big building, so there were a lot of lights on. Doesn't matter. For them, it was a sign that people were up late, about to attack. Paranoia increased among the Soviet leadership. And Gordievsky is quoted in Ben McIntyre's book, The Spy and the Traitor, The Greatest Espionage Story of the Cold War, as saying, In launching Operation Ryan, the KGB broke the first rule of intelligence. Never ask for confirmation of something you already believe. Hitler had been certain that the D-Day invasion force would land in Calais, so this is what his spies, with the help from Allied double agents, told him, ensuring the success of the Normandy landings. Tony Blair and George W. Bush were convinced that Saddam Hussein possessed weapons of mass destruction. And that is what their intelligence services duly concluded. The KGB leadership, pedantic and autocratic, was utterly convinced that his KGB minions would find evidence of a looming nuclear attack. So that is what they did. When you look to verify a suspicion, you will find what you're looking for. Always. That's one of the dangers of
2: intelligence organizations. Do you scrutinize the intelligence you bring? Do you have an opinion and you try and verify it or you come neutral not knowing anything? And if you're told to bring certain information about certain things and only that's what you're interested in and not anything else, you are actually betraying your, your profession. And that's what happened here. Again, look at it from a different angle. If you're a government who wants to react in a certain way and needs an excuse and wants it, then what is a better tool to do it than use your organize- security and intelligence organizations to bring the information that you're, you you build on to do the act you want to do? So if you really believe it, it's one thing. If you're using it as a tool, although you're not sure it's true,
0: it's another thing. It's another thing. So even looking at Gordievsky's quote, and you look at the D-Day thing, Hitler was convinced the attack would be in Calais, and so that's what they found. Because he knew there'd be an
2: attack. So he was looking for it, and they allowed him to find it. Bush and Blair
0: maybe they were looking for an excuse. Some Fortune could argue. Blair
2: needed another extra information or intelligence to justify going out for war. And uh, anything they can justify going out to war, going against Saddam Hussein, was the right thing to bring to the table. And they asked their intelligence organizations, bring us more information because everybody thought there was something. The assumption was there is, or there was. We're still looking for it, even today. <laughs> but apparently yeah. it wasn't there. But there's a different thing. Uh, when you have an opinion about something that's going to happen and you want to get information about it. I won't say fabricate information, but everything you're looking at, you interpret it as something that will justify what you're
0: saying. Yeah. I mean, the importance of objectivity and not setting an expected result is, is so important. You know, in a
2: authoritarian system where you obey the orders and you believe what your leaders are telling you, they will show sure that this is the situation. For the KGB and their agents,
0: they felt that this was the right thing to do. The Soviets became convinced that in 1983 the US will initiate a first strike, launching atomic missiles at them. President Reagan made matters worse by authorizing a vast NATO war games exercise called Able Archer 83, simulating Armageddon. The Soviets believed that this could be a cover for an actual start of a war, and reacted by placing hundreds of SS-20 mobile ballistic missiles, each 45 times more powerful than Hiroshima, on alert and in the Baltic, they prepared their northern fleet to attack. Their nuclear submarine bombers mobilized. Gordievsky, in the central London KGB station, was in the middle of all this, seeing ramping tensions and fearing imminent war and destruction. Taking the information he had, detailing the hysteria in the KGB and in the Soviet leadership, he went to his handlers, explaining what was going on and what he had witnessed, warning of playing with fire and how nervous Moscow was. Gordievsky's information was passed to Prime Minister Thatcher, who in turn passed the information to President Reagan, telling him that his speeches were inflaming the Russians, feeding their paranoia, and convinces Reagan to cool his rhetoric. Through back channels, intelligence agencies start to cool each other's fears. And slowly, slowly, the world is brought back from the brink. Pretty incredible. Was it all one person? Was it this? He was a part of something.
2: The intelligence organizations have a role to play, and that is behind the scenes, passing messages between governments, even hostile governments, to give information that sometimes is more difficult to pass through the normal channels. And that's why you need these relationships, you need these these channels. Now, in this case, Oleg felt, there isn't really a threat by the West to do something. And he knew it. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done what he did. He also knew that the other side really believed that there is a threat because of the structure of the Soviet Union at the time and how they were thinking. And he realized that in his position, he could do something to defuse the situation. Now, you have another situation here, and that is how do you convince the Western powers that actually the Russians are not interested in a war, but they believe there is going to be, and they might do something. This is where you have to pass information, and this is where the Americans then... Decided, wait a minute, wait a minute. Exactly. This guy, uh, you're using big guns. Who's this? What's it all about? If you're going to Reagan, Reagan's going to say, who's this agent? Who's this guy? I want to know more about him. What else
0: is he saying? Give me more information. Bring me the proof. As the world is brought back from the brink, the Americans wanted to know how it was that this happened amazing amazing how did these tensions suddenly cool where did this information from a top source in the kgb suddenly come from the mi6 had presented it that the information came as if it was from many sources but the cia were a little bit smarter than that knowing that it was clearly from a single well-placed agent and they were unhappy with being drip fed they wanted access they wanted gordievsky and so the cia set out to find a source and leading this was the chief of Soviet counterintelligence, Aldrich Ames. There was one problem. Aldrich Ames, the chief of Soviet counterintelligence at the CIA, was a KGB spy.
1: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good place to have a spy, wouldn't you say? That's a pretty bad place to have a spy on your side. If
2: you're on the wrong side of things, yes. If you're on the right side of things, yes.
0: Ames, figuring out through a process of elimination that the source must be a high-ranking KGB agent in London, settled on the recently promoted Gordievsky, who in late April of 1985 was promoted to KGB station chief in London. Ames passing the information to KGB. A month after his promotion, in May of 1985, Gordievsky is summoned back to Russia, leading us to his ordeal detailed in the opening dramatization. Surviving his interrogation, Gordievsky is placed under house arrest. MI6 has no contact with him, and Gordievsky is under constant surveillance. Now was the time for Operation Pimlico. Gordievsky, on his daily jog, manages to shake off his tail, there goes that cross-country running coming in handy, and goes to an appointed place at exactly 7.30 on a Tuesday, and under a specific lamppost near a road, He exposes a British plastic shopping bag from Safeway, giving a signal for six minutes. If the signal is received, this means he'll be picked up on Saturday, four days later that same week. Hoping against hope that the MI6 is watching, Gordievsky waits for 20 minutes. And then, an agent appears. A man eating a prearranged chocolate bar, a Mars bar, and holding a green Herods shopping bag. The two making eye contact. Operation Pimlico was a go. That specific corner was monitored by agents every week for seven years, even when Gordievsky was abroad. And on that particular Tuesday, it was a good thing. None of them were sleeping on the job.
2: In the whole story, this is one of the amazing things about it. Seven years. What does it mean? That for seven years, there's always someone... More than one person. More than one person. That's all his job in life is to monitor that thing to be that at that place, one street corner one street corner
0: have a mars bar handy have
2: one and should be fresh <laughs> doesn't have have a it's
0: not 7 years
2: old <laughs> not 7 years old mars bar and to be prepared and even the years that he was outside of the country you still have to do it although you know that he's not going to go there because you know he's somewhere else he's not in the country but you have to do it why because you don't know who's compromised and you don't know if maybe they think they know the something and it, it's not specifically for him. If they stop it, I in was going to say
0: maybe Operation Pimlico is for a, a, a couple of different people that they could have done. And so,
2: okay, let's let's take that a step ahead. So if someone is compromised, so they
0: then the Russians know that this is
2: the place that any okay. agent wants to be. Right. That's where they will go.
0: So each one has. Uh, so there's several different street corners across Moscow that have agents. And every street corner, <laughs> there's every there's street, street a a corner, Babushka watching. I watch you. Every street corner, there's someone walking around with a mouse bar, watching,
2: corner, the mouse bar. <laughs> no. and a green hair. It's back. No, I. You don't do it for everyone. No. And in this case, specifically, you're more alert. We we don't know the full detail of how they did it, but it's quite remarkable that they had it for that long and this is the purpose of someone doing it. And it's not only that. That means that for seven years, you believe that anyone you put there and anything you do has not been compromised. Yeah. And you know how well the other side works. So, this is quite a remarkable situation. It's remarkable. Remarkable.
0: Remarkable. Yeah, it really is wild to think about it. The specific street corner being monitored. Now, what happens if he loses his Sensory's bag? Segway bag? Or the. What was it? A Segway? Segway. He flashed a Segway's bag, and then the agent was. So, what happened if he wouldn't have had the bag? If he lost it? If
2: if they looked in his apartment? What if they
0: closed Segway, the supermarket?
2: (laughs) Exactly. So, if it would have been that specific bag, it'd have to be something else he had a stock of bags that's probably something that he
0: kept with him right and you're not going to question someone having but, a segue. yeah behind. but
2: then maybe the the housemaid would throw it out so this is an old bag already lying around with the holes in it for seven years you've been holding this bag you don't know how, look at your house you have maybe he bags. kept the
0: danish porno magazines in there <laughs> i don't want
2: to go into that but i would say that it's an operation by itself amazing
0: just that element of it is amazing but there's more is there? Thatcher's approval was required for Operation Pimlico to go forward, and the British foreign policy advisor was tasked with getting it. Too sensitive to phone Thatcher, he traveled across country to Scotland as soon as he got word that Operation Pimlico was in action. Why do you think he, he didn't want a phone? Too sensitive. Someone could Why? be listening. Exactly. So, you know, even in the heart of England, between a conversation, you would think, between the PM, they still couldn't trust it. It was so sensitive. Pushing past deputies and secretaries he manages to speak to Thatcher, coming up with excuses as to why he's there before he finally reaches her, and speaking to her, he gets the approval he needs. Gordievsky can't take his family or tell them, and shaking off his surveillance once again, he catches a train to Leningrad. then from Leningrad, another train and buses towards the Finnish border. Hiding in the woods, at an appointed time, MI6 officers arrive with their wives in a diplomatic car, concealing Gordievsky in a trunk with a heat-reflective blanket, which could be used against infrared if they were scanning the car. They drive with him towards the border to Finland, hoping to smuggle him through. All the agents are under surveillance. Danger all around them. And at one of the guard posts, one of the Russian guards senses something is off. Dogs surround the car, and at that moment, it's the MI6 officer's wives that save the day. Deploying tactics of distraction, one opens a bag of cheese and onion crisps, tossing them to the dogs, while the other, in the car with their baby daughter, gets out and places the infant on the trunk of the car, directly above Gordievsky, to change the baby's diaper. The sniffer dogs are completely thrown off, and waved through, the diplomatic car, crosses the border, and five other checkpoints. But all this time, Gordievsky doesn't know if he's free until... He hears the signal. The strains of Sibelius Finlandia suite blasting from the radio. Gordievsky, for the first time in his life, is truly a free man.
2: Now, imagine what it is to have someone tasked to go in the car with a baby, assuming it's theirs, not some random baby they picked up somewhere in the supermarket. <laughs>
0: but it's for the cover as well, you know, diplomatic. It's the cover, but if
2: they get caught, what oh, happens? Yeah,
0: horrible. Yeah, what's you know, what's going to happen? You yeah. get
2: caught, the baby, what's going to happen to the baby? You know, are they going to say, oh, ah, what's all this"? I don't see so many families volunteering to do this kind of work with a baby and child and doing this kind of thing. Now, did they go there for the first time? Was it the first time they were there? Or they practiced it? The board is open. Did they know it was right? This was thought about seven years ago. Things have changed in the board. Things have moved around. Interesting. Interesting. Each
0: one of those episodes is very interesting of this operation. It's a wild escape. It is. A wild escape. This was a KGB colonel in Moscow under house arrest who manages to escape. This had never happened before. Never have someone, someone of Gordievsky's level of importance and, and status had ever been able to flee. And once he was free, all the intelligence that he had was finally able to be used freely without fear of compromising him. So it was a big deal well, in that regard But You have to think as well, as well
2: that at that point, the Russians were not 100% that he's a traitor. Right, because then he wouldn't be in a house arrest. Sure, so he had a little bit of flexibility, not a lot, but he's maneuvering around trying to get away from his surveillance. He had to do it in a way that looks normal. Because if you're his, doing it,
0: his jogs, you know, he jogs.
2: Still, you know, the, the the security guards or people behind him, they know to jog as well. They don't bring, they bring people who know how to do the work. But he has to make sure it looks normal. He didn't probably did it once or twice, and that's it. He didn't do it every day because then they'll feel that something's happening. So. In their minds, until that moment, you would think they were not 100% sure about him.
0: Well, for sure. If they were 100% sure, they would have put a bullet in his head. Oh,
2: no. i will put him to trial or put him in jail or or put not in a house arrest. Yes. So the house arrest at that stage was, for them, okay, we're still investigating, looking into
0: things, hoping to get stuff maybe from Ames. Maybe, yeah. Tried in absentia by the Soviets, Gordievsky was sentenced to death, a sentence Which remains to this day six years after his escape the Soviet Union finally fell and Gordievsky's family joined him in London, but at that point his marriage had already fallen apart in November of 2007 Gordievsky was poisoned with thallium by rogue elements in Moscow who were trying to assassinate him taking a visible toll on his health He was hospitalized and unconscious for almost three days but recovered in Gordievsky's opinion The culprit was a UK-based Russian business associate who gave him sleeping pills for insomnia, but he refused to identify the associate. On advice of the UK authorities, Gordievsky noted, I'm the only KGB defector from the 1980s who has survived. I was supposed to die. Today, Gordievsky lives in an undisclosed location, alone, under heavy protection and security. In 1995, his memoir, Next Stop Execution, was published. And throughout the course of his freed life, he worked with security services as an advisor, as well as on many programs on espionage and spycraft as an expert and different things. He once said about the KGB that it was an exclusive club to join and an impossible one to leave.
2: At least alive.
0: So yeah, later in his life, he worked um, as an advisor with security services and as an advisor on different espionage programs and books and all these different stuff. And he's still with us today. Quite a remarkable life. I would say so. It's uh, quite an amazing story.
2: It's not a story. It's a true event of someone's life. And uh, he made the initial contact. He made the decision. He had to think two steps Out of steps idealism. It wasn't money. He didn't want money.
0: A lot of double agents, I guess you're insinuating, are people who don't make the first contact but are contacted by the other side and are turned that way?
2: You would say that a lot of the double agents have the opportunity to be double after they be compromised, not necessarily do they come forward and say, I'll be a double agent.
0: I would say he was a double agent. What would you say he was? Something else. But he was a double agent. He was working for the KGB, but actually working for the MI6.
2: I don't think he was working for the MI6. I think he was selective in what he thought would be right for them to have. He always kept his dignity. He decided the rules. He was dictating to them more what information he will be able to give them and what was right to give them. I don't think he felt that he is working for another side. I think he felt he was working. Yes, he is working for the West, but not is working for them, if, if, if you know what I mean.
0: I see. He's not getting his marching orders from them.
2: He wanted to keep his independence. So That's are, why he didn't
0: take money. So are you saying that, well, later he actually did take – they him through of course afterwards account. they needed yes. yeah but um so you're saying that a, a lot of double agents get their marching orders from the other side like we need this information go get it well when you're a double agent
2: you have to know where your loyalties are mm-hmm. and and who who is who actually tells you what to do he was a russian agent yes he did his work for the russians yes and he did stuff and told stuff to his english mi6 handlers but did he see himself as a double agent in the pure meaning of double agent? It's more of an academic discussion. Than he was
0: a, working for the British. He saw he was himself working as for the working for the British yes. and the Soviets as an evil... Yes, but remember, um, for instance, the yeah. four
2: years he was away, he didn't work for the British. Right. He made a decision, and they made a decision.
0: What was decided, he going to do, run away?
2: No, I mean, he could have said, well, we want to make contact with you. You're working for us. You give us information to find a way to come out. No. He said, and he he gave put down the ground rules from the beginning. I don't want to take any money. I don't want any traces. I don't want to follow me. I don't, know. I don't want anything that someone can say that I'm working for you. You make sure you take care of me. What made him fall was, unfortunately, because the Americans had a rotten apple in their, in their organization, in the wrong place, at the wrong time. Did our friend here know about it? No. Was he aware that there is someone like that? Probably yes. That's why he was afraid, for instance, to go with the Danes. That's why the Danes realized that the only way they can do it is go to the Brits.
0: Well, that's why the Brits were so careful about, you know, not sharing the information. And of course...
2: Or you could look at it in a different way. He knew, assuming this is the situation, that the Russians don't have an agent in the MI6 at the time. Or at least not the ones
0: he was dealing with.
2: He felt that he knew, knew enough that if he goes to the MI6 or the MI6 approach him and the MI6 can take care of him, he won't be compromised because he knows... Maybe what assets the Russians have, in the Danes' situation, he didn't feel that way. Mm. Doesn't mean that they they're working. Although the Danes are working, no. But he he knew he had to take care of himself.
0: McIntyre, in his book that we quoted from earlier, said of Gordievsky that most people tell a version of the past and then either stick to it or embellish it, but Gordievsky's power of recall were different. Able to store prodigious amounts of information in his memory, including the content of conversations he had held and their contexts, and to analyze them and extract pointed insights. The result was the single greatest operational download in MI6 history, an astonishingly meticulous and comprehensive insight into the KGB, past, present, and future. It reminds me a bit of our previous episode on Casanova and the ability to recall and memory and because you're not taking notes and meetings and things. And yes. interesting that, they, that he mentions this as well.
2: Yes, it's important, very important. What did you say?
0: <laughs> well, you, as I said previously as well, you've been known to, to have a, a very good memory and to not forget different details and other stuff like that. So what do you think drove Gordievsky, if not money, to be a double agent? Do you really think it was truly idealism? He was a man... He saw himself in a different category. He was
2: from a younger age he was open up to the world, to the mm. to what the world had the culture of the world, the openness, the, the world around him, in if it's music, if it's freedom, if it's whatever it is. He didn't find it where he was where he was working for. That's why he decided to do what he did. He wanted to make a difference in a different way. He wasn't happy. He could have resigned. I mean he mm-hmm. could have said, You know what, I don't want to work anymore.
0: Well easy leave. to join, difficult club to work. Yes, leave. I
2: agree. But in this case, he decided to take a risk, a very big risk.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you hire him?
2: This is not a guy you hire. <laughs> this is a guy that if you have an opportunity to work with, you are grateful. People like that, just don't, you just don't stumble on them. Look, you have to have the right person, the right approach, at the right time, and the right chemistry to make it happen. It's all, if you ask me one word on this situation of all the whole case that you have here, it's one word that comes to mind to me. Trust. He trusted that he
0: will not be compromised. By the MI6.
2: By the MI6. Whatever they do. Because he's putting his faith in
0: their hands. And 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 he trusted that they would rescue him. If
2: Yes. And that's why they built this thing. Even though it took seven years to have someone sitting in a little corner every Tuesday, coming to a certain place and waiting there and being there. Did he know that there'll be someone there? He was hoping. Did he
0: trust them that they will make sure that his information will not be given to others? Yes. His promotion to the London office, even his posting there, you know, seven years or however long it was that he was working in Russia before he got posted there, you could say that was lucky. But it could also have been maneuvering on his part to to get back into the action, right? You say, right place, right time. If he wasn't posted to the London office, we probably wouldn't be talking about him right now.
2: I would put it in a different angle. He was a deputy head in Copenhagen. He went back to his headquarters, and now he's supposed to go out again to be promoted to a bigger station or bigger place. London was one of the biggest stations they had and one of the important stations they had. So it wasn't like, okay, there's five people in in London. Let's put him there. It's a very big station. Mm -hmm. A lot of people, a lot of work, a lot of things to do. He's already experienced. He's already done a posting abroad. You would say even two postings. He's done already uh, some time in the headquarters. He's someone that's on the ladder, Send him to somewhere, he can make a difference.
0: He also learned how to speak English later. Of course, (laughs) I assume he did. Before the London Posting, yeah.
2: So it made sense to go there. It wasn't, okay, we'll send you to Andorra. Okay, sorry, we'll respect to Andorra, but you don't send someone that caliber to a... You could have sent him to Berlin, okay. But they decided to send him to... London. It, it makes sense.
0: Yeah. I mean, London or Washington or... He
2: was in, more on the European side, so they sent him to Europe. They didn't send right. him to the Far East. They didn't right. send him to... They thought Europe would be more and, more and that's what suitable. they needed. Yeah. And they did have very important assets there yeah, in England. for sure. They did. Always, and they always have. They have a lot of activity, so they need experienced people. Did he manip- manipulate the situation to go there? It could have been. Maybe he turned down a position somewhere and he said, you know what? I'll wait another year and I'll go out to to London next year. Well, like
0: like any organization, I'm sure there was a little bit of wriggling and stuff. So much doubt when they were recruiting him. So many traitors and secrets between agencies and even inside the same nation. How can anyone trust? You know, you say it's all about trust, but how can anyone trust in in this this world of espionage? It's built on interest, but
2: it's built on trust. And in this case... But how can anyone do it? You have to in the end. I mean, he trusted the MI6 to take care of him. He did not want to work with the Danes, not because he didn't like the Danes or he thought they were no good, but he knew he needed a professional organization that has the capabilities of doing the things that he thought he will need eventually to work with. He didn't know that the Danes would go to the MI6. Mm -hmm. He was willing to work with the Danes, but only until the MI6 guy came to him, he felt comfortable to work with him. And again, one of the first things they built, as you would do, is your safety and security that's your number one always you do with anyone who comes in and works with you and if they feel that's the case and they don't push you I mean pushing i mean when you go back home you say you know what here's a number when you're four years five years three years there'll be someone there on the other line waiting for you and we have to make sure if it's a telephone line in those days it was a telephone line with a room in an office with a phone and someone has to be there 24 hours waiting next to that phone specifically Maybe just for him, because if you compromise that number and that number's compromised and someone sees you phoning it, you compromise another person. So there'll be someone waiting at that specific number for someone to phone you and maybe never phone. So you have to have a lot of resources to run an operation like that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about what it meant for an organization to run a case like that and to keep him safe from the point of view of the reporting, not to reveal who he really is, and not to share the information with too many people, even in the organization. Only very, very specific organizations are able to run operations like
0: that. Well, if your organization is only three people, it's hard to keep a secret between the other two.
2: (laughs) Correct, but then you can't (laughs) be as well sending out someone with a bag. That's what I'm saying, you know. The phone and then finding a baby to help you with it. Exactly. So you need a bigger, more. uh, yes. Yes.
0: So is trust different in the world of espionage? Is it defined differently? You have to keep it. If you break it, it's very hard to come back to it. Both the Danish and the MI6 first tried a honeypot approach. Why? Is this the de facto approach? It seemed the right thing to do at the time. I mean, I can understand. It's classic. I mean, they didn't
2: know. And you have to understand something else here. Anyone who tries to approach him, you're compromising him. The most scary part for the MI6 people was the guy walking in the park with the chocolate. Because if he was compromised, and they didn't know that at the time, they would have arrested him. Now he could have said what he wanted to say, but he would have been arrested. He could have spent some good years in prison. So when you go out, and when you do that job, it's not okay, Let's who's available? you know? Let's send someone out. No, you have to trust that this is not gonna happen. I'm sure that they may be built in other mechanisms to make sure that if he is compromised and he has to do it, maybe he'll come out with a, a different bag or with something else mm-hmm. or another sign. Because that's what you do. It's all about trust. It's a risky business. This is not just a James Bond going around drinking martinis and having nice women around him all the time.
0: But the, the honeypot approach, I mean- You start with that. You both a- both agencies it. started with it.
2: You start with that because it, uh, human- Because
0: it's also a natural thing that is an excuse and uh, for it's, contacting it's, or, uh, yeah.
2: It's easier, it makes sense to start off that way sometimes. Depends on the circumstances. Remember where it was taking place, Copenhagen. It's not in the middle of uh, Moscow.
0: Right. The escape plan. I don't imagine this is normal protocol to have something in place for all double agents no. of that nature. No.
2: I would say it's nearly impossible to have so many things like that. I mean, you could say I have something just for, for all my agents, but then if you're compromised, you're compromised everybody. Right. So you have to be very, very selective on who you decide to do it with and how.
0: But designing escape plans is something that occurs for different agents. You
2: always have to have an escape plan for everyone all the time.
0: But something as intricate as something like Operation Pimlico. That is
2: extremely, extremely complicated. Look, those were different times. In today's world, it's different. You have different ways of communicating and different ways to arrange things and different threats and different circumstances. For those days, for those times, that was the right thing to do if you wanted it done. Anything else you want to say about Gordievsky? Remarkable story. Remarkable man. It shows you that you have to lay down the rules and have to trust sometimes people who you thought were enemies with your life because you know that this is the only way you can get out of it. Difficult. He paid a big price for it. Almost died. Died. Loss of the family. Isolation. Fear of assassinations. Not being on your own name anymore. I'll be able to go back to your family or to, to your ones you knew were back in my own country yeah. yeah so there's a price for it but he's alive
0: we'll end with a letter gordievsky wrote explaining the reason he became a double agent i must emphasize that my decision is not the result of irresponsibility or instability of character on my part it has been preceded by a long spiritual struggle and by agonizing emotion and even deeper disappointments at developments in my own country and my own experiences have brought me to the belief that democracy and the tolerance of humanity that follows it represents the only road for my country. The present regime is the antithesis of democracy to an extent which Westerners can never fully grasp. If a man realizes this, he must show the courage of his convictions and do something himself to prevent slavery from encroaching further upon the realms of freedom. And Somerset Marne, the man he was told to read, once wrote, If a nation values anything more than freedom, it will lose its freedom. And the irony is that if it is comfort or money that it values more, it will lose that too. As well as, what makes old age hard to bear is not the failings of one's faculties, mental and physical, but the burden of one's memories. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening, and remember, be careful who you trust, and always keep a Mars bar ready. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production, with original scoring and mastering by Julian Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, Drop us a message, and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time.
1: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.